Let me ask you now to open up to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Here for the first time, we're going to meet a man named Moses. And without a doubt, Moses is the most important human character in the book of Exodus. He isn't the main character. God is the main character of the book of Exodus. But Moses is the main human character of this great book. In fact, Moses is not only the most important man in the book of Exodus, we could argue he is the most important man in the entire Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, when the Hebrew writer wants to show just how great Jesus is, what does that writer do? He shows how Jesus is even greater than Moses. In other words, when trying to show that Jesus is greater than even the greatest of men, it is Moses that the Hebrew writer turns to outside of Christ. And especially in the Old Testament, there has perhaps been no greater man that ever lived than this man Moses. Most of the book of Exodus is about one year in Moses' life. Moses is going to live to be 120 years old, but almost everything that happens in the book of Exodus happens when he is 80, in his 80th year of life. But that's not where we begin. First, Exodus gives us just a little of Moses' backstory. Uh, great men do not come out of nowhere. God providentially prepares them for the work that they are going to do. And so Exodus chapter 2 is all about the providence of God. And it's all about the work that God did in Moses' early life to prepare him for the role that he would have. God used terrible, wicked, and unusual events to make Moses the man he needed to be to deliver God's people out of Egypt. And so the book of Exodus begins not with Moses at age 80 or even with Moses at age 18. The book begins with Moses as a little baby. And in this passage, we are going to see that three women are the special instruments that God uses to save Moses' life and to get Moses exactly where God wanted him to be. And so I want to unpack this passage this morning by looking at each of these three women. And along the way, we'll see God's lessons for us. And so I want to begin with Moses' mother. Uh, We later learn that her name is Jochebed. And we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 2. So this is the first three verses of Exodus 2. This is the very Word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, the first thing we find in this passage is an emphasis on Moses' Levite heritage. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons who became 12 tribes. One of those sons was Levi. And so we have the Levitical or the Levite tribe. And this is the tribe that Moses came from. In fact, Jacob's son, Levi, appears to have been Moses' grandfather and his great-grandfather at the same time. And you think, how can that be? How can someone be your grandfather and your great-grandfather? Well, Moses' father was Amram, the grandson of Levi. So on his father's side, Levi was his great-grandfather. But Amram married his own aunt, his father's sister, Jochebed. She was a daughter of Levi. And so on his mother's side, Levi was his grandfather. So Moses was doubly Levitical. He was very much a Levite. Why is it important that he was? And why does Moses go out of his way in writing this to highlight his Levite heritage? Well, it's because the generation of Israel that is receiving this book of Exodus was that second generation in the wilderness. And they had learned from God at Mount Sinai that all of their religious leaders, their spiritual leaders, were to come from the tribe of Levi. Their ministers, their priests, were to be Levites. And so we see here that even before the law was given, God is raising up from the tribe of Levi, Moses, along with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, to lead God's people. Now we see in this passage that Amram and Jochebed have a son. And this is a wonderful occasion. It's a, it's a great thing to have a newborn baby. But Pharaoh's decree at the end of chapter 1 is now in effect uh, Aaron is the older brother. He, he was likely born when there was no decree. Aaron's life is not in danger. But Pharaoh has now commanded all of the Egyptian people, if they see an infant Hebrew son, he is to be thrown into the Nile River. None of the Hebrew baby boys are to live. And this means that Moses is born into a moment of danger he is born into a moment of genocide in which Hebrew boys are being targeted for death. And it's not only the work of Pharaoh, but it's also the work of, of Satan who is working through the unwitting Pharaoh. It is Satan who is out to kill all the boys of Israel so that God's promises of a Messiah from the line of Jacob will be destroyed. Your fate, my fate, your salvation, my salvation are on the line here as the devil is seeking to upset the plans of God. We are told that Jochebed looked at her newborn baby and saw that he was a fine child. 
That's how the ESV translates it, a fine child. The King James says that he was a goodly child. That's the word it uses, goodly. And because of that, some people have thought that this was a moral statement, that, that somehow Jochebed looked at her infant son and saw that he was going to be a boy of, of good moral character. Um, maybe she heard a, ah, you know, in the background, and a, a halo or something, but um, that's not the idea at all. Rather, the fact that Moses was a fine child simply means that he was what all parents want in a newborn. He was healthy. He was a healthy-looking baby boy. Many children in the ancient world and, and in third world nations today are born sickly and weak because of the conditions they are born into. And certainly Moses was not born into good conditions. And yet he was born a healthy child. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so we have a a healthy-looking, a fine-looking child. And so what does Jochebed do? Well, despite the decree of the king, she sought to save the life of her child. And for three months, she keeps the child hidden in her home. And we can imagine the stress and the fear that was upon this family at this time. It is very likely that Amram, the father, was not even around that he, like the other slaves, was, was far away building these store cities for, for Pharaoh. And so Jochebed may have been on her own with these three children, trying to hide this youngest one, hoping that nobody would hear and turn them in to the authorities. Hebrews tells us that Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict because of their faith in God. In other words, just like the midwives that we looked at last week, we find that these parents were willing to disobey the king of Egypt rather than to disobey their God. They would do what is right, putting their trust in the Lord, and then let the chips fall where they may. Their faith didn't mean that they knew everything was going to turn out okay. Their faith didn't mean that they somehow knew God was going to take care of their baby. Their faith simply meant that they were going to trust God more than man and that they would do what was right, no matter what the consequences might be. They would not kill their own son or see him be killed by others, and they risked their own lives to protect his. But of course, you can only hide a growing baby boy so long. And so after three months, we see Jochebed at work with another plan. She puts together a papyrus basket. Uh, Papyrus is a long, reedy plant that grows in the the Nile River. Uh, It floats really, really well and was used for Egyptian boats. In fact, papyrus was used for all kinds of things in Egyptian society. And it's interesting, I just saw recently that the papyrus plant is in danger now on the Nile River and uh, is about to, to go extinct I have a sheet of papyrus paper hanging up in my office that I can bring out for you to see sometime if you would like. The SV, though, says that she took the papyrus and she made this little basket. It says basket. The the truth is it was something like a little boat. In fact, the word that is translated basket is used only one other place in the entire Bible. And it's back in Genesis 7 verse 1 where God tells Noah 
to build an ark. And that's the word here. Noah had his ark. Moses now has his ark. This is a floating container. This is a a box. It would have had a covering to protect the baby from insects and certainly to help muffle the baby's cries. It also would have had air holes for the baby to breathe. And it's interesting, just as God told Noah to use pitch to seal up his ark, we find Jochebed using pitch, using mud to seal up Moses' ark. This would have protected the container from the, the destructive elements of the Nile. So what does Jochebed do with this basket? Well, she, she does not simply put Moses in the basket and then send the basket down the river uh, without breastfeeding. This child was going to die. Rather, what we find is that Moses was set among the reeds at the bank of the river. In other words, this baby was being kept in a place where it could be hid, where where he could possibly be retrieved and nursed and be placed back into the river. The baby was being placed outside of the home for the protection and, and for his protection and the family's protection. But the sense is not that the baby is now being discarded. In fact, just the opposite. As we're about to see, Jochebed instructed Miriam, the older sister, to keep watch over the basket and to see what might come of it. But before we turn to Miriam, what do we learn from Jochebed? Well, we see in her the spirit of a true mother willing to risk her own life for the life of her child. We see a mother doing everything she can to protect the life of this baby. And thankfully, due to God's common grace, there are many, many mothers still like Jochebed in this world who have that maternal spirit and would give up their lives for their children. But we do see increasingly in our secular age a a different attitude. Too often we see mothers willing to kill their children before they're even born. And too often we see mothers who think of their children as an inconvenience to their own selfish lifestyle. The secular view is that children may be one small part of a woman's life, but that those children should never keep the mother from pursuing her dreams, fulfilling her desires, striving after her goals. In other words, there are many women who have missed the fact that caring for children is one of the highest and most dignified callings that God can ever give someone. It's not a calling that God gives to everyone. But for those to whom God calls to motherhood, they should recognize it as a high calling and care for their children well. We need more mothers like Jochebed. In her, we see not only the tender heart of a mother who loves her child, but we see in her a backbone of steel and rock-solid resolve to do all she can to care for him, even despite the threats of a king. In other words, this woman was no pushover. This woman was no weakling. She was courageous, and she was brave, and she was strong. And yet she was self-sacrificing. In other words, we see in her something of the character of our God. Remember, the book of Hebrews includes Jochebed along with Amram in the hall of faith. Moses' parents are set before us in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, as examples for us to imitate. 
Moses' parents were believers in the true God. And in them, we see something of Him. Our God is committed to the care of His children. Our God has been willing to sacrifice on our behalf. Our God became one of us and went to the cross for our sakes. Moses had the decree of Pharaoh against him, sentencing him to death. But his mother provided an ark of refuge, a place of safety. Similarly, all of us are guilty and we have been justly sentenced to an eternity in hell. But our God has graciously provided for us an ark of refuge, who is our Savior, Christ the Lord. Is there anyone in this room who was still in danger? Is there anyone in this room who is still under judgment? The, the decree of hell is still hanging over your head because of your sins, and you have not fled to the ark of Christ Jesus. Your Father has cared for you. He is providing for you. Come to Jesus before it's too late. Turn from your sins and trust Him. Like Jochebed, God's loyalty to His children is unbreakable. And His resolve to care for us cannot be weakened. Mount Hermon, do you know how blessed you are to have a Father like the Father that you have? Let's now consider Miriam, the sister of Moses, standing guard as he floats among the reeds of the Nile. Let's read beginning in verse 4. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went. And called the child's mother. Now we are unsure how old Miriam is at this point. She was likely old enough and mature enough to be trusted, to stand guard over her baby brother, but young enough not to be expected to be working if some Egyptian should come along and see her. We would guess she was probably between 6 and 12 years old. Now think about that. How many of you kids in this room between the ages of 6 and 12? And can you imagine being trusted by your parents to keep watch over your baby brother whose life was in danger? Would your parents be able to trust you with such an important job? Children, let this be an encouragement to you that you can do important things. And you can handle important responsibilities. David Farragut was 10 years old when he served as naval cadet. 11 when he had his first battle. 12 when he was the commander of his own ship. Clara Barton, Red Cross, was a nurse at age 11. 
even while you're young, you can become responsible and you can be entrusted to do great and important things. But of course, you have to prove yourself trustworthy. You have to be responsible in the little things, kids, if you're going to be trusted with big and important things. Children, can your parents trust you with important things? If there was ever a moment when it really mattered and your parents needed to give you an important job, could they count on you? The way Jochebed counted on Miriam. So Jochebed sent Miriam to watch the ark. We're only told that Miriam was supposed to pay attention so that she would know what happened to the baby. It is possible that the baby was placed where Jochebed was hoping An Egyptian woman might find the baby and have compassion on him. Or it's possible that Miriam was simply standing guard until evening so that Jochebed could retrieve the baby and and feed him. We're not told the precise nature of of Moses' mother's plan, but we do know what happened. The daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe in the Nile, and while there she spotted the basket. Now, the Egyptians had uh, baths that they would go to, but sometimes they would bathe in the Nile because they believed the Nile was sacred and had special properties. Uh, This princess sent one of her servants to receive the the basket for her, and inside they discovered the baby. Uh, We're told that Moses was crying, and this, of course, may have been what drew the, the attention to the basket to begin with. But we're told that when she looked upon the child, she had pity on him. And she immediately recognized this is a Hebrew boy. Now, we're not told how she knew it was a Hebrew boy. Was there some physical feature that was different between Hebrews and and Egyptians? Uh, Did she assume it was a Hebrew boy because of the area in which he was found? Was there something in the way the baby was dressed? Uh, In the old Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, there was a Hebrew scarf uh, in in the basket, and that's how she picks up the scarf and says, oh, it's a a Hebrew scarf. This is a, a Hebrew child. The Bible doesn't tell us how the princess knew that this was a Hebrew child, but it does tell us that she knew. And she certainly knew the decree of her father. This is one of those boys that that she's supposed to drown in the Nile. And look where she is. She's in the Nile. How easy it would have been for her to simply push the basket downstream. But instead she looks and she takes pity on the child. And here is where Miriam really shines. As the princess seems to be deciding, what am I going to do? Which way am I going to go? What, what am I thinking of here? Suddenly we see Miriam and her bravery and her boldness. We, we see her as a quick thinker. She approaches the princess of Egypt. Now that's, that's a big deal. She approaches this princess and she says, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I think we can assume that Hebrew slave girls didn't typically approach Egyptian royalty with such boldness. And it's very possible that Miriam was quite afraid and that her legs might have been quaking as she spoke. But whatever happened in her heart, her bold action helped save her brother's life. 
And now, of course, who is she going to go get to care for her, her brother? She, she goes to the baby's mother, her mother, Jochebed. And so Moses will now be cared for by his own mother under the protection of the princess. Mount Hermon, where did Miriam, this young girl, learn such bravery and courage? Surely she learned it from her mother. Didn't we just see Jochebed's own courageous care for her son? And now we see, like mother, like daughter, that same courage is coming out in Miriam. Well, parents, let us never forget what a great influence we have on our children for good or for ill. Let us never forget that we are to pursue godliness not only for our sakes, but for the sake of our children, because they will be shaped by what they see in us. Far too often we parents or grandparents begin to see our own sins and our own failures showing up in the lives of our children and grandchildren. And it grieves us. It grieves us when we see, we we recognize that bad attitude. We, We recognize that bad behavior as being our own. Now appearing in them, they have learned it from us. What a motivation this should be for us to repent quickly of every sin that we know of and to live godly lives. Younger eyes are watching us. Younger eyes are learning. But thankfully, God can also use our influence on our children for great good. Do you want children who believe that God is great and love to honor Him and love to praise Him? Well, then here's where you must start. Make sure that you're cherishing God. Making sure that you believe He is great and that you love praising Him and adoring Him and your children will see it and it will shape them. Do you want children or grandchildren to become men and women of prayer who have deep, intimate fellowship with God? Well, then make sure that you're a man or woman of prayer, having deep, intimate fellowship with God. Do you want children or grandchildren who are honest or gentle or compassionate? Well, then are you honest, gentle, or compassionate? Yes, we must teach our children with our words, but at the end of the day, we know actions speak louder than words. We see this with the things of God. You can tell your children till you're blue in the face that the Bible is precious and worthy of their time. But if they look at your life and they see that the Bible apparently isn't worthy of your time, what have you really taught them? It's the same thing with with being committed to the local church. We can say all the time, church is important. We need to love the church. But they're looking more at how we how we live in our own example to see whether it's really important. It's been on my mind lately because a few weeks ago we read our church covenant together and we covenanted together that we would support the regular meetings of the local church. And that Sunday night we had a regular meeting of the local church. We had a prayer meeting. And I would guess more than half of the people who stood up and made that commitment that morning weren't here for the regular meeting of the church. And that's disconcerting because I don't expect God to bless a church of hypocrisy. These weren't people who were sick or out of town. There was a large number. 
large number who just weren't here because they chose not to be. And so often we say, better is one day in God's house than a thousand elsewhere. But when it comes time to choose, we show that that's not the delight of our heart. Mount Hermon, if not for our own sake, think about the young people among us. The kind of commitment they will have to the church is the kind of commitment they see in us. And if the church is the place where God most cares for their souls, and it is, then would we not want them to be passionately committed to the meetings here? I would dare say if we take time to think about all the lessons that our children and grandchildren are learning from us, we would all find we have some areas in which we need to repent and some areas in which we need to plead for God's forgiveness and even for our children and grandchildren's forgiveness and that we ought to resolve to do better. But what a wonderful truth that God can use what is good in us to positively influence and shape our children and grandchildren just as Jochebed's courage and bravery came through in her daughter. So we've seen Jochebed. We've seen Miriam. Let's briefly turn our attention to Pharaoh's daughter, the lady who is now going to become Moses' adopted mother. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, and and now she's speaking to Jochebed, she's speaking to Moses' mother, Take this child away and, and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, it's very important to recognize that Pharaoh likely had many, many daughters. It was customary for, in the ancient world for foreign kings to give their daughters to other kings as wives in order to form political alliances. And since Pharaoh was the most powerful king in the ancient world at this time, we presume that he had many, many wives and therefore many, many children. Some scholars tell us that it's even likely that this daughter of Pharaoh had never even met her father. But nevertheless, she was a princess of Egypt, and she was a person who was honored and revered by the people. In those days, we think that children were typically nursed up till around age four. And so it is likely that Moses was with his own family, being cared for by Jochebed till at least then. It is possible he was in his home for many years afterward. We don't know. But at some point, some point he did go to live with Pharaoh's daughter, and she became his mother. Now, we're certainly going to get the sense later on that Moses knew his brother. Moses knew his sister. It's not as if suddenly he's closed off from having inter- interaction with his family. We think he still knew his family. But it was this mother, the adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, who gave him the name by which we know him, the name Moses. She gave him this name because she drew him out of water, and the Hebrew word mashah means to draw out. But there is a real irony here. The word mashah in Egypt simply means son of. Son of. 
Now, normally it would be followed by another name, son of so-and-so. But Moses' name is left without the second part. Here is a Hebrew boy who is going to be raised as a young man in an Egyptian household. Who is he a son of? Is he going to be a son of Israel or a son of Egypt? What is going to be Moses' identity? With whom is he going to identify when he gets older? With the Israelites of his kin or the Egyptians and the royalty with whom he will live? This question is what gets answered in the next passage that we'll look at next time. But for now, I want you to notice the providence of God that has been at work in this whole event. It was God who caused Moses to be set down in that particular spot upon the bank of the Nile. It was God who brought this Egyptian princess to that spot for her bath. It was God who inclined her heart to have pity on this child. Proverbs 2, 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If that's true of kings, I'm sure it's true of princesses as well. Why did she have pity on the baby? Because God inclined her heart in that direction. You see, God had a plan for Moses, and it included Moses being brought up among the best that Egypt had to offer. In Acts 7, in the speech that Stephen gives just before he is stoned to death as the first Christian martyr, he mentions that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So think about this. The very decree of Pharaoh that was meant for evil, God is now turning for good. Moses would have never been in that container, floating on that river, had Pharaoh not ordered the deaths of Hebrew boys. But because he was in that container and found by this Egyptian princess, he is going to receive an upbringing and an education that he otherwise never would have had. Underneath Pharaoh's own nose, this young man is going to be trained and prepared for the day when he will become Pharaoh's great enemy. Moses is being trained with the best education available in the ancient world at this time, and Pharaoh is footing the bill. This is the wisdom of God, to work through one of Pharaoh's own daughters to accomplish the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to prevent. Pharaoh wants to prevent Israel from becoming a threat to Egypt. He wants to prevent Israel from leaving Egypt. He wants Israel firmly under his control. But through Pharaoh's own daughter, God is working to show that this Pharaoh has no control at all. There is only one ultimate throne, one sovereign king. Pharaoh will be defeated and God's people will be set free. I think it's interesting that God prepared Moses for leadership through a great education. As I mentioned a while ago, at this point in history, Egypt was not only the most powerful kingdom on earth, but it was the most advanced in knowledge. We know that Egypt had scholars in the field of mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. We're told these scholars would have trained the young men of the Egyptian upper class, including Pharaoh's own family. More than that, Moses would have received at Pharaoh's dime the most advanced military training of his day. Do you think that's going to come in handy a little later as they're traveling against enemies in the wilderness? Here's an important lesson for us. 
Education matters. See, we're getting ready to go back to school, right? We need to hear this. When God chose to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there were already lots of men in Jerusalem, but God brought Nehemiah, a well-educated man, to lead his people in the project. When it was time to rebuild the temple and to bring God's people back to his word, there were lots of people in Jerusalem, but God brought Ezra from afar, another man well-educated and well-skilled. When choosing his disciples... Jesus chose common men, fishermen, and and tax collectors. But then he raised up Paul, a man trained in the finest rabbinical schools, a man who sat at the feet of the greatest Jewish teacher of the day, a man named Gamaliel, and he would become the chief spokesman for Christianity in the world. Mount Hermon, there can be little doubt from the Scriptures and from our own experience that a good education is needed to equip people to lead well. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we don't want to be fools. And those people, those students in schools that, that, that make fun of people who like to learn, those students in schools that call those who like to learn nerdy and geeky, they're fools. Because fools despise knowledge and instruction and understanding. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Moses is receiving the kind of education that is preparing him for the day when he will stand before kings. And not just any king, but the most powerful king on earth at the time. And so kids, let me say another word to you. Some of you have already started the new school year. Some of you are about to begin. Work hard at your education. Make the most of your schoolwork. Math and English and science and history and Latin. God will use these things in your life. And do all you can to love knowledge and to learn as much as you can while you can. And don't just learn knowledge. Learn skills. Learn how to focus. Learn how to to exposit and and to, to write. Learn debate and research and rhetoric and logic. Learn people skills. Learn how to relate to others respectfully and well. And if you want to make an influence in this world, learn leadership skills. It's no accident that the next step of Moses' preparation is that he's going to spend 40 years as a shepherd of sheep. The next 40 years, he's going to be a shepherd of sheep before he goes to be the shepherd of the people of Israel. He had to be taught academic lessons and he had to be taught life lessons. Let all of us love knowledge and learn every lesson we can so that we can be better equipped to serve God in every calling he gives us. And so I close with this. We see how the providence of God was at work to equip Moses for the calling God had on his life. But dear Christian, don't you think for a moment that God's providence has not been just as much at work in your life. God has brought you to the place you are. God has made you the person you are today. What might He have been preparing you for? What roles of service, what acts of obedience has He been preparing you for? 
For some of you, it may still be that very first act of obedience. He's he's saved your soul. He's made you ready. You need to be baptized. For others in here, it may be that God has been preparing you to minister to others through some particular ministry. Maybe He put you through some kind of trial that makes you better equipped now to minister to others in that situation. Think about your life. Think about what God has done in you. What can you do now to serve Him and to make a difference in this world? We're going to watch together as Moses is used by God to change the world forever. It's going to be a fun ride. Let's pray. Let's pray. And so, Father, I ask now that you would help us to take these lessons to heart. Help us to be a people who love knowledge and don't despise it. Help us to be a people who are quick to see what you've been preparing us for and to serve you well with the gifts that you have given us. Father, help us to be courageous and brave like Jochebed and Miriam. Help those of us who are adults to live the way we would want our children and grandchildren and other young ones to live. And Father, most of all, help us to flee to the ark of Christ Jesus and to find safety and refuge. Father, let there not be a person here who leaves this place today still headed to hell. But Father, move in their hearts so that they will turn from their sin and give themselves to Jesus and follow him. Father, would you bless us now? Would you cause these words that we've heard to burn in our hearts so that they make a difference in us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.